You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It was a spectacular fall from grace. Just last year, Sam Bankman-Fried was running a crypto empire estimated to be worth tens of billions of dollars with the lifestyle of a celebrity. Now he's a convicted felon for what federal prosecutors describe as one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. A jury found him guilty on Thursday night of all seven criminal charges against him. Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison says Bankman Freed was stoic as the verdicts were read out. Sam was very still. He had his eyes cast down. The jury walked in, took their places in the jury box. The judge asked Sam to stand up and face the jury. He had his hands clasped in front of him, kept his eyes towards the floor or the desk in front of him as the guilty verdicts were read out. He was very still, emotionless, but his parents looked like they were quite overwhelmed. They were sitting in the public gallery just a few metres away from Sam. They held each other. His father almost doubled over as his mother put a comforting hand on his back. Manhattan U.S. Attorney Damian Williams called the verdict a warning. This is what relentless looks like. This case moved at lightning speed. That was not a coincidence. That was a choice. And it's also a message. It's a warning, this case, to every single fraudster out there who thinks that they're untouchable. My guest is former federal prosecutor Michael Weinstein of Cole Shots. Michael, the jury deliberated for only about four hours. What's your reaction to such a quick verdict? Not surprised. The evidence was insurmountable for the defense, and the jury obviously agreed. The government made this case almost simplistic. They did not get into the issue of cryptocurrency and all the nuances of cryptocurrency. They brought it as a simplified, straight-out fraud case. And that's pretty easily digestible for a jury. And their witnesses were prepped to foster that kind of criminal activity. And so when it goes to the jury and there's overwhelming documentary evidence, there's overwhelming testimony, and the defense takes the stand, and he's just not credible, or if he is, it's it's pretty watered down, that leads to a quick verdict. When the defendant takes the stand, it's all about his credibility, and we've talked about how risky it is. But I don't see that he had much choice here but to take the stand. Do you think... Looking back, the defense is regretting that now? I don't think so. I think, as you said, they had very little, if any, choice. If he did not take the stand, his narrative, his story would never have come out. And his perspective and his denials 
would never have been entered into evidence. It didn't work. I still think the defense had no choice. The three witnesses who flipped were the heart of the prosecution's case, the star witnesses, and the defense tried to cast doubt on their credibility. But prosecutors make their cases on these kinds of witnesses, and it seemed that the jurors believed them. Was there anything the defense could have done to hurt their credibility? Certainly the defense could have been more aggressive with them and tried to chip away, if not take them out in some ways, and articulate perhaps that they were doing this in order to get a better sentence or they were doing this because they were vindictive or they were a jilted lover, in Miss Ellison's case, things of that nature. But the downside of doing that is, you know, the jury turns on you as the defendant. And so the defense has a delicate balance. You know, they want to be aggressive. They want to make sure they undermine the testimony of the cooperating witnesses, but they don't want to go so much overboard that the jury turns off to that. Do you see anything else that the defense could have done in this case? I think they were in a very, very uphill battle. It was kind of doomed from the start. Could they have been more aggressive, perhaps? Could they have prepared their client a little bit you know, longer and a little bit more precisely, perhaps? But, you know, he had said a lot of things for months and years prior, so it didn't really matter how much they prepped him because he had already said things on the record and through Slack messages and through emails and through congressional testimony, which came back and haunted him. So there really was not much more they could have done other than try to get some of the witnesses in that were rejected by the judge, and uh, that might have changed the dynamics of the case. And, Michael, if you add up all the possible sentences, it comes to something like 110 years or more. What's a more likely sentence for Sam Bankman-Fried? He's looking at decades in prison, no doubt. He will not see the the light of day, whether it's the Bahamian light of day or the U.S. light of day, for well uh, when he's an older man. That seems like a lot of time for a white-collar crime, Elizabeth Holmes only got 11 years. It's a lot of time, but, you know, this is the Generation X, you know, Madoff. And you have to really look at the cryptocurrency space, and it's the Wild West. And, you know, in almost no scenario is it ever appropriate to use customer funds for your own benefit. And that's simply what happened. And there was just no justification for that. And what about the three witnesses who turned on him and flipped? I mean... Cooperators often get good deals. My mind always goes to Sammy the Bull Gravano, who got only five years in prison despite confessing to 19 murders. And Gary Wang said on the stand, he's hoping for ideally no time in prison. Right. He may hope that, but that may not be realistic. I'm not so sure that they're going to get no time in prison. I think their involvement and the types of charge that they pled guilty to warrants specifically jail time. Yes, they were cooperating witnesses, and yes, they gave testimony, which ultimately was a a huge, tremendous factor in the defendant's conviction. And that's something that their defense attorneys will draw out before the judge and will argue with the government that they should warrant a downward departure and they should warrant a variance in any kind of potential sentence. I think the three of them were really the three nails in the coffin for Dan Bankman fried And at the end of the day, their testimony was just too insurmountable. Do I think they're going to go to jail? Yes. And is the government likely to try to force the three cooperators to pay restitution? I believe so. The government's going to look and see how they benefited from their criminal activity. And often, as any condition of a criminal sentence, the government will require restitution back to the victims. So if the three cooperating defendants benefited from the criminal activity, the government will try to recoup some of that money. That's another fight. You know, what is the extent of the money that the government wants paid back? 
the defense lawyers are going to say, well, there's very little money or no money. They didn't benefit. And look at, you know, how much they cooperated with the trial and the benefits that the government received from them providing testimony. The government's going to say all that is true. And yes, they did cooperate. Yes, they provided helpful testimony. But that still doesn't mean that they shouldn't pay back the money that came from the um, criminal activity. These cooperators made a lot of money. Caroline Ellison testified that one year she made $20 million as a bonus. Nisad Singh has already agreed to surrender a $3.7 million house he bought and shares in an artificial intelligence startup that he paid $40 million for. Does the government know where the money is to be able to force restitution? Yeah, and that's a lot of money, and that's excessive. But again, that is just monopoly money for these three or four people running the business at the time. It's no different if they were 20 years old and out of college or in college, sitting around drinking beers on a Friday night, playing Monopoly. To them, $20 million was just a Friday night. And so do I think the government has tracked that money? Yes. Do I think the government knows where the money went? I think a majority of it. And that's the problem that the defendants that pled guilty that are going to have, is that the government knows how much they had at their disposal, how much was given or taken by them, and the government's going to go after it and try to take it. Let's talk about the possibilities on appeal. For example, the judge ruled against Bankman-Fried on several pretrial motions, holding he couldn't call seven, I think it was, expert witnesses to testify. And then during the trial, he held that mini testimony and decided he couldn't use the advice of counsel defense. Do any of those seem like winning appellate arguments? I think they're interesting. Do I think that they're going to carry the day on appeal at the Second Circuit? I I think the answer is no. Certainly his defense lawyers are going to make a robust attempt. But, you know, the government's going to have arguments and opposition The judge is given some latitude and discretion under the federal rules of evidence to make a decision based on those types of issues. So I do not foresee the Second Circuit overturning the conviction. The U.S. Attorney Damian Williams gave a little press conference last night and said that the case was a warning to fraudsters. We've heard similar warnings from other U.S. attorneys. Do these kinds of statements have any impact on white-collar crime? No, it sounds great. It's wonderful before the media. It's something that a federal prosecutor, especially leading the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, should say and must say. He has to let it be known that there's a sheriff in town and he's going to patrol and make sure that the public's protected. But if you look back on the history of, you know, frauds in the last 40 years, starting with Michael Milken, going to the Enron scandal, then going to Bertie Madoff, and now ending up with Sam Bankman-Fried, There's a pattern here, and every 10 or 12 years, you know, there's another big prosecution that's brought by the U.S. Attorney's offices, and it reemphasizes the point that there's fraud, and there's people that commit crimes, and the government is there to regulate and to be the sheriff and to say, no, that's not appropriate. And the judge will sentence Sam Bankman-Fried in March. Thanks so much, Michael. That's Michael Weinstein of Cole Shots. Coming up next, should public officials be allowed to block you on social media? I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money 
at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. That's what makes these cases hard, is that there are First Amendment interests all over the place. And not only are there First Amendment issues all over the place, as Justice Elena Kagan put it, but the justices' questions seem to be all over the place as well, as they considered whether two school board members in San Diego and a city manager in Michigan could block followers who were criticizing them from their social media accounts. The central question is whether the social media activity constitutes state action, making it subject to the First Amendment. And the justices presented a host of scenarios to the attorneys. Here are Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Brett Kavanaugh. So let's assume a mayor says, I'm setting up a hotline for emergencies on my Facebook or Twitter. And um, if you have an emergency call that hotline, and I will use the power of my office to set in motion government response for your emergency. Seems to me that that's government action, isn't it? But suppose the city manager on the personal site says, we have new recycling rules, you have to use a blue bin, has to be at the curb, will be picked up on Wednesdays. If you have any questions, contact me. That's only on the personal site, not on the official site. Is that state action? Joining me is Professor Eric Goldman, co-director of the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University Law School. Eric, explain the main issue in these cases. The core issue is what should happen when government officials maintain social media accounts? Can they treat it as if they're ordinary citizens, or are they governed by the rules that apply to government generally? And are the issues in the two cases before the court basically the same? They're basically the same. There are little details about exactly how the particular government officials were using their social media accounts that might matter to the final conclusion. But the core questions the court's asking and the legal tests it's likely to adopt are probably going to be the same. So let's talk about the concerns of some of the justices. And Justice Elena Kagan said there are First Amendment interests all over the place. I thought that was a really great line, honestly. Uh, Justice Kagan has just such a great way of turning phrases, and she's absolutely right. There are First Amendment considerations on all sides. It's not like there's an easy path forward that balances all the respective interests. On the one hand, people who work for the government should be free to engage their communities and express themselves publicly as private citizens. That's the constitutionally protected right. They don't give up that right by going to work for the government. On the other hand, when the government controls online discourse spaces where people are talking to each other, there's a really real and significant risk of censorship. And so the concern is that if the government officials can act like private individuals, they can functionally censor conversations. Now, if they're acting as a private individual, they're allowed to do that. But if they're acting as a government, they're not. And so either we're going to circumscribe the free speech rights of government employees, or we're going to allow government employees to circumvent the free speech rights of the people who want to engage with them. Somebody's going to lose something here. 
So to me, it seems like, you know, if you're posting public information on a website, on a Facebook page, that that should be open to the public and the public able to comment. And if you want not to do that, then have a private page as well. Certainly those ideas came out. In fact, there are three different categories of pages that a government official might have. They may have a official government page. They may have a campaign page, which is not part of their official government duties, but still is an important place for them to evangelize the work they're doing. And they may have a personal page that has nothing to do with their role in government. And figuring out which account is in which category is something that is baffling to us as citizens when we see our government officials online. And it's also vexing to the government officials because so often they want to take their victory laps. They want to tout their successes. And we aren't sure. Are they touting them as official government policy, as a campaign promise, or just because they're touting their own work as a private individual? And the court didn't know how to approach that issue. They understood the trade-offs, but there was no clear way to move forward that was going to satisfy everybody. Do you think that they can come up with a clear legal test? here? Honestly, no. There is no clear legal test. And I think we can be a little bit more emphatic that the different considerations include things like what's the employee's job and what tools are available in social media to be able to control conversations and which of those tools was wielded and how did the person describe or characterize their account and how much of the account was used with official related postings versus personal postings. Like we need a multidimensional matrix to try to figure out where to place all the different nodes in those questions. And that's why even with two cases in front of the Supreme Court that they can use to compare and contrast, they still don't have enough cases to cover the full range of facts that are going to be implicated by their ruling. There were three hours, I believe, of oral arguments. (laughs) Did you see blocks of justices sort of coming to some conclusions, or did you see any patterns? The short answer is no. Really, the oral arguments were quite opaque about where the judges are likely to end up, which is unusual. One would have hoped that we would have been able to get a clearer line from the oral arguments. Having said that, there are two things that stood out to me. First is that some justices seem to be gravitating around the test that was advocated by the Department of Justice and was endorsed by the lawyers for the government employees about looking at the duties of the government official and their authority to speak on behalf of the government. And so Justice Gorsuch, for example, at one point said, it sounds like we got consensus. That's the right test. Um, I don't know if there was consensus, but it wouldn't surprise me if the test looked something like that. At the end of the oral arguments, Justice Kagan, once again, had a really powerful turn of the phrase. She came and basically blasted the government lawyers, saying that the government lawyers' proposed test was really out of sync with the importance of social media to the government function and would limit the ability of us as constituents in order to be able to defend our own interests when the government keeps embracing social media. So I saw kind of two opposite approaches there. Justice Gorsuch saying, you know, sounds good to me. Let's go with a test that you proposed. And Justice Kagan saying that test is actually really harmful to the future. At times when we've had these oral arguments at the Supreme Court involving, you know, the internet, texting, social media. The justices have seemed to be a step behind, maybe more than one step. Did they get all the social media implications in these cases? 
They really didn't. This was yet another example of how the Internet baffles Supreme Court justices. And just to be clear, we don't know how many Supreme Court justices spend time on social media, but it's not like they do it publicly. So they're just not familiar with social media at the same degree that most of us as everyday users are. So it's not surprising that it's a little bit baffling to them if they're not immersed in that as part of their daily functions. But there was a really awkward line that came from Chief Justice Roberts where he talked about social media and described it as the gathering of protons. And it was such a reductionist approach that social media is just about the movement of electronic pulses on the Internet. That's all it is. (laughs) And it's kind of like saying the Supreme Court opinions are just ink on, on a piece of paper. It's a reductionist conclusion that isn't inherently wrong, but it completely misunderstands the scope and the stakes at issue in this case. And this is the first of several social media clashes that are coming up this term involving the First Amendment and how it applies to social media companies. So just to be clear, there's going to be a steady stream of Internet law cases going to the Supreme Court and likely to be decided by the Supreme Court over the next few years. We've had just this upswell of legislation trying to regulate the Internet, and many of those laws are going to end up before the Supreme Court. So we're just kind of at the beginning of this multi-year cycle where the Supreme Court is going to be regularly deciding the future of the Internet. They might have to actually get on social media. Thanks, Eric. That's Eric Goldman, a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law. Coming up, the justices consider Trump too small as a trademark. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. He's always calling me Little Marco. And they You may remember seven years ago when Donald Trump and Senator Marco Rubio were engaged in locker room talk over the size of Trump's hands. Now it's part of a case before the Supreme Court. Attorney Steve Elster says he has a free speech right to trademark the phrase Trump too small to use on T-shirts. 
The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office disagreed, and it appears that the Supreme Court also disagrees. At oral arguments on Wednesday, justices across the ideological divide suggested that denying Elster a trademark for the phrase does not violate his free speech rights for a host of reasons. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson discussed the point of trademark law. And trademark is not about expression. Trademark is not about the First Amendment and and, and people's ability to speak. Trademark is about source identifying and preventing consumer confusion. Justice Sonia Sotomayor said that not getting a trademark does not infringe on his speech. Because you're not talking about stopping the speech. You're talking about not receiving government protection for activity that you would like to heighten protection for. It doesn't stop you from selling. It doesn't stop you from selling anywhere as much as you want. Justice Neil Gorsuch pointed to history. But at the end of the day, um, it's pretty hard to argue that a tradition that's been around a long, long time, since the founding, you know, common law type stuff, is, is, is inconsistent with the First Amendment. And the chief justice said that giving him a trademark would have the effect of restricting the speech of other people. Because the whole point of the trademark, of course, is to prevent other people from doing the same thing. So if you win, you know, the slogan, Trump too small or whatever, other people can't use it, right? The case revolves around a section of the Lanham Act that requires written consent to use the name of a living person in a trademark. Joining me to help explain it all is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Terry, tell us about the procedural background of this case. Mr. Elster sought trademark registration from the United States Trademark Office, and the trademark examiner handling the application denied it as a violation of the Lanham Act, which is the trademark laws. Mr. Elster then appealed within the trademark office, which confirmed the denial, and Mr. Elster took it to the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit here in D.C. The Federal Circuit unanimously reversed the decision of the trademark office on constitutional grounds. It found that at least as applied in this case, Section 1052C of the Lanham Act was unconstitutional in light of the First Amendment. And the Trademark Office decided that this was important enough to appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. Elster's lawyer told the court that the government's sole interest in denying the trademark is protecting the feelings of famous people. But that's not a legitimate reason to burden protected speech. How did his argument strike you? It sort of struck me as being weak in many ways. I thought it was extraordinarily weak. My reaction was that Mr. Elster's counsel did not do a very good job. It was pointed out in the press that this was his very first argument to the Supreme Court, but quite frankly, it came across as his first appellate argument <laughs> of any sort. And indeed, his response to this question was really a Hail Mary because he was unable to answer a previous question from Justice Kagan. Justice Kagan had asked him for any case that he could think of in which the conveying of a government benefit in a position-neutral viewpoint had been held to be unconstitutional. You know, it was crickets in the room. He he had nothing. (laughs) Nothing except maybe a sinking feeling? Yeah, when Justice Sotomayor asked this, he went for his, you know, press conference 
soundbite, which was, oh, we can't be protecting the feelings of famous people. Well, you know, that's actually not what this statute is about. And it helps sometimes to read the actual wording of a statute here, 15 U.S.C. 1052C, essentially bars registration of a trademark that, quote, consists of or comprises a name, portrait, or signature identifying a particular living individual except by his written consent. This applies to everybody. It applies to you, applies to me, applies to the listeners. A living person's name and likeness can't be used to promote another product. And this is fundamental to trademark law going back into the common law. It was known as passing off. You know, it was claiming that some famous person had blessed this product or was associated with it. And so it was very much sort of an absurd response to Justice Sotomayor and really reflected a core problem with their argument, which Justice Thomas identified quickly. He asked just straight out, what's the burden on free speech here? And really didn't get an answer because simple fact that, as you said, you People are already using this slogan everywhere. The fact that you don't get registration does not mean you can't use the slogan. And Mr. Elster himself has already been using it. All it means is that he's been denied the benefit of registration, which is the ability to exclude in certain circumstances third parties from using his slogan. And the Chief Justice, John Roberts, pointed out that giving him a trademark would have the effect of restricting speech by other people who want to use that slogan. And I think it's a fair point to make that, in effect, by granting the trademark registration here, because of the unique category in which it's sought, it really does limit other people's free speech. Because this slogan, Trump too small, is apparently commonly used by folks who are opposing former President Trump's candidacy. So, Terry, we always say you can't tell from the oral arguments how the court is going to rule. But it seemed to me that justices across the ideological spectrum were against giving this phrase trademark protection. I agree with that. My count was that there was a clear majority skeptical of granting registration. And I agree with your comment. It's hard to always read oral arguments. But in this case, particularly the tonalities of the justices' questions really reflected pretty hardened positions, antagonistic to any attempt to register this. My count had Justice Thomas, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and Chief Justice Roberts as all skeptical, if not outright, saying they were opposed to registration here. In addition, I had Justice Gorsuch and Alito disagreeing with Mr. Elster's counsel on different grounds. They historically are opposed to this notion that trademark confers a government benefit. So by my count, that's six justices who seem pretty firmly opposed to registration of this trademark. And I really couldn't count any of the other justices as being in favor of it. They just seemed to not express an opinion one way or the other. So six zippy is a pretty good starting point for the government here. So that leads me to the question, how did a unanimous panel of the federal circuit allow this trademark? June, we could spend a lot of time on decisions by the federal circuit, where I practice a lot, by the way, and the level of disrespect accorded to those decisions by the Supreme Court of the United (laughs) States. True. I mean, the mere fact that this decision came out of the federal circuit probably starts off with, you know, points in the government's favor here, because the Supreme Court just doesn't respect 
decisions, most significant decisions coming out of the federal circuit. The history of reversal is just phenomenal. And so, I mean, those of us who practice the federal circuit on a regular basis say, okay, you get granted, search the RE out of the federal circuit, you got a good chance of winning. And this is another great example. The federal circuit was 3-0 in favor of Mr. Elster. And their views were in large part based on an attempt to accord their decision with what they perceived the Supreme Court wanted based on prior cases involving the First Amendment trademark. And it looks like, once again, they just plain got it wrong. And in two of those prior cases, the court struck down parts of the trademark law in favor of free speech. One trademark involving an Asian rock band called The Slants and another involving a clothing brand called F-U-C-T. So if you look at those two cases, you would have come away, as the federal circuit did, thinking that the Supreme Court dislikes limits on trademarks relating to some form of speech, even if that speech is really distasteful. And in both those cases, it was very distasteful. And yet the federal circuit clearly misread what had happened before, and they just plain got it wrong here. We'll see just how wrong when the decision comes out. Thanks so much, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Catanuchin Rosenman. Coming up, JetBlue goes to trial with the government. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. If not blocked, the merger of JetBlue and Spirit would result in higher fares and fewer choices for tens of millions of travelers across the country. The Justice Department is suing to prevent that from happening. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced in March that the government was suing to stop JetBlue's $3.8 billion takeover of Spirit Airlines. And on Tuesday, the trial began before a federal judge in Boston. It will be a test of the crackdown on airline consolidation at a critical time for the industry when domestic low-cost carriers have cut services as fares slide and travel slows. Joining me from Boston is Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst Jennifer Ree, who's covering the trial. Jen, this isn't JetBlue's first run-in with antitrust regulators. Why is the government trying to stop this merger? Well, you know, the government really sees this as reducing output and increasing prices, or at least a deal that would have the potential to do that in the industry, because Spirit is 
what's considered an ultra-low-cost airline that offers a la carte options. And so if a consumer wants to fly and really get the very lowest price they can, they have the option of doing that on Spirit and not buying the extras, the food or the in-flight entertainment, whereas JetBlue has a different kind of a model. And so JetBlue, if it takes over Spirit, intends to change everything over to its own model. All the airplanes would be retrofitted, so there'd be fewer seats. So that means reduced output, and it would likely mean increased fares because JetBlue's average fares tend to be over Spirit. So overall, the Department of Justice is concerned about the removal of this a la carte, ultra-low-cost option. JetBlue's lawyers said the companies account for just 8% of industry revenue. Even after the merger, JetBlue's market share would rise to just 7% from 5%. I mean, is the government going after them because of the decades of lax enforcement that have left four airlines with 80% of the market? Look, that's a good argument by JetBlue, but I think it's sort of a red herring because at the end of the day, that national competition, that combined national share isn't really relevant to the antitrust inquiry because the antitrust inquiry looks at options for consumers and consumers that are trying to fly from, let's say, Boston to Santa Fe don't care about the fact that combined they're small nationally if when they're shopping for their flights, they have fewer options and now the prices have gone up. Those consumers care about that. So really with airline deals, they have to be looked at from city to city and which airlines are competing on each of those routes. So it's kind of like a lot of mini mergers. Well, what do you think JetBlue's best argument was in the openings? Well, I think that their best argument is, and they've done a good job with it, that, look, at the end of the day, we are going to increase competition because we have a really tough time fighting against the big legacy carriers, Delta, American, and United, and you can throw Southwest in there, too, that actually combined account for about 80% of air travel and cost a lot of money. We have lower fares than they do, and by increasing JetBlue, by making JetBlue a bigger, more viable competitor, we can exert more competitive pressure on those legacy airlines and it pulls down their prices. It's something that the Department of Justice has acknowledged called the JetBlue effect. And I think that the lawyers have so far, we're just at the beginning, effectively laid that out and made that argument. And I think it's a good argument because what it does is forces the judge to kind of say, which is the better side? You know, which is the bigger harm or the lesser harm? Is it better to remove this ultra low cost option for some real bargain conscious consumers? But end up, you know, exerting more of a competitive influence on the legacy carriers. Which side is stronger? So if an airline could have a persecution complex, it seems like JetBlue (laughs) would have one. It's the second time that antitrust enforcers have stepped into a JetBlue deal. You know, I think that it's the types of deals, essentially, that JetBlue has entered into. So, you know, if you looked at the deal with American, I think that the partnership went a little bit too far. They were also collaborating on capacity and they were collaborating on revenue rather than just code sharing. And I think that that was kind of what doomed that. And the judge will decide whether this merger is doomed as well. Thanks so much, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.